Hello, and welcome back to some more lockdown listening, where thanks to the technology, we've managed to connect our browsers, microphones, and aging tape machine to catch up with some people in their homes. Even though the careful listener will, of course, hear a panoply of off-microphone sounds of barking dogs, passing vehicles, and the pings and dings that announce arriving texts and email, the real story of these long home-working weeks of 2020 is surely just how seamlessly, stoically, and capably our head office teams have adapted to home-working. Over the last two months, the precarious perches for our laptops have turned into fully-fledged working areas, and we've embraced video conferencing, digital water coolers, remote, all-hands working sessions without missing a beat. The flexibility is insignificant, though, in comparison with the resilience and spirit shown by our colleagues on the front line. In warehouses, call centres, essential retail, they have shown retail really is at the heart of the UK community as well as commerce. Now, over on our website, we've been tracking the attitudinal position of the UK consumer via our Consumer Confidence Tracker. You can see this along with the stories, achievements and updates on retailers at internetretailing.net slash COVID-19. I'll put the link in the notes. Now, we have two guests today who've allowed Jamie and I to beam into their home offices, Gracia Amico and Robin Phillips. Gracia Amico is a chair, non-executive advisor and experienced CEO. In the past, she's held senior digital and commercial roles at Burberry, Topshop, Hobbs, as well as being CEO at Pet Pajamas. After a period as head of digital operations at Sun Capital, Gracia is now non-executive director at Stitched, the online curtains and blind seller, and chair of the pet technology company, Petmate. Let's hear from Gracia. I have moved on a little bit from fashion, but what holds all, everything together, what I do do is, is digital, e-commerce, new way of retail, which isn't really new at all anymore. And I am currently working on a portfolio uh, career, as they call them. It means like I've got a variety of non-executive roles or chair positions. And this is mainly for online retailers, one of which is in the pets industry. Uh, and I've done more in the pet industry than uh, in the last few years in any case. And I love that industry and I think it's very fast growing. But I'm also involved, for example, in a, um, a curtain company which is based on digital 3D modeling. Wow. Okay, so let's do pets first off, because I know I raised an eyebrow and sort of teased you a bit when you went to Pets Pajamas. So tell me what's interesting about the pets market. And, you know, I say this as the person that pays to feed a couple of cats as well as teenagers, and I've just seen the incredible results, for example, at Pets at Home. So we know that the sector for spending money on our pets uh, is booming. But what are the dynamics of the sector that attracted you? Yeah, what you're saying is, is so true. Um, it is, uh, pets are an incredibly important part of, of, of many families. They are really part of the family. And uh, over the last maybe 10 years or so, people have started realizing that it's a booming industry and there's a lot of uh, potential there from a business perspective. So what attracted me is the fact that 
not first and foremost because they're pets and I like pets. Of course, I, I do really like pets, but I've always said I could possibly do any business model as long as it makes sense from a business perspective. I don't really mind what it is that we are trying to sell or help our customers with. But pets is, of course, a very, it's a very nice industry. But maybe it's also because I'm one of those people who we don't have kids, but we do have, we have realized that our dog is part of the family without it being cringy mm. or strange, I think. But um, it, is, it, is, it is a very important part of a lot of people, people having kids later. The US, I think, started a little bit earlier than we did, where people are walking their little pets in big cities and the pets had were even wearing, wearing like little coats and that they would go to the daycare centers. And, you know, it's, it, it became part of normal life in a way. And, and now that it has started here as well, or it has been here for quite a while, and the rest of Europe is, is also taking this trend on board. So it's a very interesting very interesting uh, industry and it also has a lot of space to personalize you know there are some really uh, very successful businesses in the pet industry that have for example done personalized uh, foods mm. and they have been bought out by some by the big players so there's yeah. a lot of fun to be had as well very much part of my dna is is, is the customer you know, if there is no need for a customer then you can try whatever you like but you're not going to sell anything so you know the company that i work with at the moment petmate uh, they have it's pet technology so i do have cats ian and um, cats apparently don't like drinking water that much but it is actually very bad if they don't so this absolutely so we, liver problems exactly yeah, kidney yes. problems yeah so the we have these fountains that cats can drink from which they apparently really really love so it is really about uh, and that's i think why the company is doing very well because there's a genuine demand for it so with petmate that's an interesting blend of the technology, the sector, and the customer use case. But also, it's uh, a change in role for you from being the CEO of Pets Pajamas to now chair. So tell us about the switch in role. You've now gone from being you know, the, the, the main executive person driving the business to this more shareholder-focused, guiding leadership role. What's that switch like as you sort of let go of the day-to-day reins and reports, but you're still responsible for the business? Yeah, that's an interesting question and a really a really good one. I think you're implying very much about the CEO role being very hands-on and you are the one who can make those changes yourself. And the chair role is a very different role. You have to sit back and observe and guide and influence and but you know you have, and manage the board and put together a very good board but at the end it's the boards and the CEOs part of that to make the company a success so yeah it is about learning to step back and to pinpoint potential and and maybe also potential weaknesses and and stir stir the CEO towards that point and work very closely and um, I think that's a really interesting role. And I must admit, it's not something I would have been able to do earlier on in my career. I think it's Why really- not? What, what is it? Because, you know, we have a number of conversations that say we need broader representation on our boards. So younger people, uh, gender, race, diversity, and so on. So when you say I couldn't have done it when I was younger, is that you being modest? Or are there a couple of things you think, oh, yeah, I need that skill 
that it took me a while to acquire. What, what, what is it that, if you like, turns the switches so that you are chair ready? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to think it's not uh, age-related for everyone. And for me, it is more about learning, I guess, about when I was, was, I was younger, I was a lot more combatant, if that's the right word. Um, I would mm. speak up earlier and quicker and therefore wasn't as influential as I could have been. And that's the lesson that I had to learn and to build mm. gravitas through the way I expressed myself and observed, not shooting from the hip all the time. And, but that's mm. my journey. And I really do think that some people have this capacity at a much earlier age. And I also do believe that people who are older still don't have it. You know, I, I do also believe that, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot uh, I think there are quite a lot of chairs out there, unfortunately, that I have observed and have not learned from. Um, I, and, and then there are some chairs that are excellent at what they do. Um, it's, mm. it's not easy and not everyone is great at it. You know, everyone has to learn and has got nothing to do with age, I guess. Yeah. And who helps you learn that? So, you know, when I used to have a job, which... Um, you know, our listener will know has not been for at least 20 years. There was always somebody that you're working for who would mold, support, shape you. But then all of a sudden you get to this portfolio stage in life, which, you know, for some of us just means unemployment. For others, it's following passions. Where do you get that support to become a good chair? Yeah, yeah it's definitely been my network. Um, mm -hmm. where previously, when I was younger, earlier in my career, I would have possibly tried to find the answers myself. I now find that I need support, and that support is coming from my network. I happen to be lucky enough to know several people who are women, interestingly, and, and have chair positions of quite big companies who have been very supportive and helpful in helping me when I had questions and very generous in that time. And I'm really grateful for, to them. And also we have set up a little WhatsApp, not just WhatsApp, but uh, a group of girls. Funny enough, they're girls and it doesn't have to be girls because I'm not one of those people who believe that women need to be in those positions because they're too too few uh, or little, whatever you say that. That's my grammar, sorry. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we do talk to each other when we have questions and support each other. And I think that is really important. It's not a gender thing. It's more about um, mm. having a network of people that are genuinely supportive when you have questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, for those networks, you also have to be someone that gives as well. So there seems to be a correlation between contributing and getting getting something out of it. Now, you mentioned in passing Stitched, stitch.co.uk, which is your other, well, one of your other NED roles. So uh, tell us first about Stitch. Then we'll come back to this question about juggling your time and influence. So um, Stitched first off, technology driven again. That's right, yes. Uh, very interesting company. Uh, yeah. in, in short, it is about uh, being able to design your own curtains. And how you do that is by using a 3D technology. And we've also made an app now where you can measure yeah. your curtains by just holding up your phone. And it will put in the dimensions of the curtain. And you can see, you can choose your curtain and you can see how that would look on your windows. So I, I'm super excited about this technology. 
Um, but what has been even more interesting about it, and this is very relevant at the moment, is the coronavirus, COVID-19, because, of course, a lot of companies are struggling at the moment because they can't do house visits. For example, if, you, if in, in the curtain mm. industry, it's very normal that the curtain people come to your house, will measure up and they will do it that way. That's not possible. But a company like Stitch, you don't have to do that. You can do everything yourself. We are empowering the customer. And of course, this is the way to go anyway. And I, I, I say, of course, but um, in my opinion, this is how uh, retail is going to change so much and already is. And so a company like Stitch has really benefited uh, from, from this change in, in customer behavior. And we've never done better which I find exciting and it just proves that if you are always looking around for innovation and if you put yourself in the shoes of the customer, then you will come up with the right business model. You mentioned business model, and I'm just going to skip back to another part of your CV now. So you spent a while at Sun Capital Partners uh, advising them on the Correct me if I'm wrong, the digital aspects of portfolio companies. Again, we have the intersection of digital and business. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that role and, and you know, what, what that involved. That was very interesting because when I, I started there, I was straight away sent out to one of the portfolio companies in the Netherlands, which is Scotch and Soda, and it's a fashion, fashion company owned by Sun Capital. And they were having problems with the revenue online. The stores were doing reasonably well, but online was going down, which made very little sense in the current climate where digital sales are only going up. So I mm. was sent out there to assess really why that was happening and to come up with some quick wins. And also knowing that there had been two very big consultancies had already been there, had done their research, had come up with these really big piles of what it was that they thought was wrong, but the, we couldn't really do much with it. And so I came in much more from a practical mm -hmm. perspective and looking at it and quickly trying to make changes. And, and, and that's what I did. And it was a really interesting journey. And it started off with simple things like, oh, well, the, the models are looking really not very great online and they're wearing so many clothes, no one really knows anymore what we are selling. So let's simplify that. So really starting from the basics and then eventually taking it all the way to working very closely with the CEO and with Sun Capital and assessing the team structure and how e-commerce possibly required a different sort of team at the very top level and how marketing possibly needed to be used in a different way and not from a traditional marketing that uh, was very much in place there, but more innovative or data-driven marketing uh, that is needed in a company. So what does that different leadership mean? So on the marketing side, uh, totally get the data-driven, algorithmically-powered marketing approach. But uh, is there a qualitative difference in the leadership needed for a digital business rather than a less digital business? What, what are those qualities? Yeah, I mean, I think there's still uh, it's the, the pretty pictures description of marketing unfortunately still exists a little in certain businesses where it has worked until now mm. you know for example I mean, uh, 
the heritage was that the CMO came from a from Heineken, which is an incredibly strong business based on advertising. You know, the advertising is is fantastic, and it's all about that image, and so that works still for some businesses. But the digital part is is very important for other businesses, and and as you are uh, you know trying to point to, is it just digital and numbers? Uh, no, it is about personalization. It's about understanding your customers. It's about how you reach them. It's mm-hmm. about taking them on a journey. It's about you know, the, the interaction on the website, about the UX, you know, how what do customers do on their website. Um, it's about getting mm-hmm. that feedback. So, yes, underlying uh, general element of it is definitely data. But what do you do with that data? How do you then get to customers? How do you put them in segments? And how do you share content with them which is relevant to those people because how do you see things changing you know from a private equity perspective in the world of covid where stores you know particularly in retail of course have had to shut down and huge revenue streams have disappeared they may have done better online but that probably doesn't make up the gap as we sort of transition back to opening up and getting on with it obviously revenue is being poor so are you going to see them investing more so they can avoid anything like this in the future? Or do you think they can't because of the fact that they've got big holes in their revenue streams? You know, how do you see it playing out? Well, from a private equity perspective, I would absolutely expect them to concentrate a lot more on, on uh, either on new investments, have a business model that is resilient, um, because we all now know that COVID-19 exists, and, and, and it's only an example. I mean, something else could come up tomorrow. So the online business model mm. works and is a lot more resilient than the offline business model, although I'm not saying it will disappear, it will just change. So from a private equity perspective, people need to really, I think it's, it's, it's woken up a lot of people and they realize that they need to look at different business models for sure. And then looking at what they have in their portfolio, and you're absolutely right, the online can't really fill that gap. Uh, you know, for example, I've talked about the fashion company I was working for in the Netherlands. The, the online has is, is pretty much doubled over the last few months because the stores had to close, but there wow. was still a gap there. Mm-hmm. And um, how is that going to be closed? I think private equity companies will, will think twice before they start investing in a company that is so heavily dependent on an enormous amount of stores and look at new models. Let's wrap up by... Going back to the leadership approach. So we've talked a bit about the things you've learned in your career as you've progressed, taking a chair role and non-exec. A, a number of people now are looking to lead their businesses back into this sort of maelstrom. It's not even normal. Everything has changed, but they're still having to set a path, you know, to try and lead the business through the next six, 12 months of uh, uncertainty. What should we be focusing on you know, in terms of our own values or behaviours or skills that are going to carry us through the uh, the next few months? Yeah, I, I love that question, Ian, because it's um, it's something I've been thinking about it a lot and also been trying to somehow then communicate that to, to the CEOs of the companies I work with. And I, I, I very much believe, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, that the business model is not so much about finance or the product. I mean, that comes by itself. I mean, that is important. Of course it is. But I think the thing that's going to set the successful companies apart is the commitment. And a commitment mm-hmm. can only come 
if there is a real raison d'etre. And so when you are working at the moment with companies where half the company is working from home and you don't have that hub so much anymore, you need to create Zoom hubs and the communication becomes so much more important. I think it is even more important that everyone believes why they are involved in this company. And so therefore sharing the successes of the products that you're selling becomes more important. So, for example, in the pet industry, if you sell the the, the products that we sell and you get some really good feedback from customers, then that feedback needs to be shared with everyone in the business to create an excitement about that product. About, about the business and how we are making a difference. And, you know, I read a really interesting article about, it was about pets as well, but about how they are with their medicine. It was just a drug company, how with their medicine they were helping so many different pets. And it brought tears to the eyes of people who are working for the company because they actually hadn't realized how what an impact they are making. So yeah. I think it's about communicating that thing that ties everyone together and that makes them believe that they do something that is meaningful. Well, I think... Um... Meaning is definitely something that's going to be on everyone's mind in the coming months as we, if you like, sort of renew the covenant we have between the customers and our businesses. So great words of wisdom. Uh, Gracia, thank you so much for your insight and for joining us during our lockdown. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Jamie. Pleasure. Thanks, Gracia. Really interesting points on leadership that are especially useful given our current changes. Now, Robin Phillips is our next guest. Robin is the CEO of The Watch Shop, but his career has seen him cover the gamut of e-commerce. He was e-commerce director at Waitrose, then director of Omnichannel at Boots, before joining Kurt Geiger as director of digital. Robin's experience then across fashion, food and pharma means that he's got a unique take on retail over the COVID lockdown. We start our conversation with Robin by catching up on The Watch Shop. Tell us a little bit about um, the watch shop and your role there, what you're up to at the moment. At the watch shop, I'm the CEO. We're a pure play. We operate out of the UK, but also in seven EU sites as well. Uh, We've got one small shop, which is our display shop, which we've had to close as part of, obviously, the coronavirus procedures. But 99% of our business is online. For people who maybe like watches, we all get what watches are, where do you fit in to the watch selling environment? So we primarily operate in the sub £500 sector. And there's a lot of fashion in there. Increasingly, we're obviously now seeing a lot of smart. We do do higher-end watches on our sister site, uh, Watch Hut, anything up to about £5,000. But the really big brands, particularly those um, uh, big Swiss brands like Rolex and Patek Philippe, uh, we don't do those. And in fact, you can't buy them online. Although Patek Philippe did do a little trial recently with with uh, watches of Switzerland. Oh, really? Now that's uh, that's one of those supermarket sweeps. I would uh, really like to win. Uh, <laughs> we've got twenty minutes to grab what you can in the warehouse. So, look, speaking of warehouses and so on, uh, how has the current lockdown affected you? Uh, has it been good for business, tolerable, terrible? How has the impact been for you? So most of our physical competition has obviously had to close. And as a pure play, and one with a very scalable website and scalable warehouse operation. So at peak, our volumes can be 10 times what they are during a normal day's trading. Uh, it's been relatively straightforward for us to scale up safely. 
So we've operated double shifts, uh, extended working hours to make sure that people in some of the tighter areas like the packing area are able to maintain at least a two metre distancing, deep clean the warehouse, um, all of those procedures, PPEs available for everybody. Uh, but generally, because we have a large warehouse, it's quite easy to do. What, what type of things have people been buying? Because, you know, time, you could say, has no meaning anymore. And uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're going back to calendars and sundials. So so what are the sort of things that uh, the, the public have been buying? Yeah, we've been, we've been um, pleasantly surprised by the scale of business. So, so far since lockdown, after, after an initial dip, we've been up between anything between 60 and 100% year on year. Mm. Uh, this week, we're up about 80% year on year in terms of our volumes. And what we're seeing coming through there is, as you might expect, quite a lot of smart uh, technology. So people obviously look to get fit or fitter at home, uh, but also a lot of treating, self-treating with some perhaps more expensive high-end items, which wouldn't normally go as quickly as they do this time of year, uh, but also a significant increase in, in gifting, so a, a lot more gift wrapping and multiple purchasing for mm. families who can't be with each other. Uh, going through as well. Interesting. And do you think this is, if you like, bringing forward all of the demand that there's going to be for the year or that, uh, you know, you're going to see this level sustained as we try and get back to a semblance of a normality? We've been doing a lot of planning and working with our brand partners for Peak. So we we have uh, hundreds of brands, but we have uh, our top 20 brands who, are, who, who we call our uh, gold partners. And they account for over 80% of the business. So we've been working quite closely with them uh, to forward plan so that um, they can confidently place orders with their factories to the extent they're able to open and guarantee supply. So we've been looking at our cash flow very carefully and and committing to a a, a bigger peak by them than we otherwise would have done. We've done some scenario planning off the back of that. We've done various, you know, good, best, you know, bad, I guess, scenarios. I suppose at, at worst, we'd expect that we'd, we'd see a sort of 10 to 20% shift, but we are anticipating that there, there may be an up to a 50% shift online uh, generally mm. uh, at Christmas, and we've, we've planned for that contingency. Because in our um, consumer confidence tracker, which has been running now for a couple of months, when it first started, only about 20% of people said that their experience the first fortnight of lockdown would change the way they shopped forever in a day. And as people have spent more and more time forced to shop online, more and more people are saying that they're going to carry on doing it. So we're now up to about 50% of people saying we're going to carry on like this, we're not going to go back to the previous ways. So I think giving people a chance to experience the capabilities of e-com has, has been good. I mean, Jamie, we were talking about this the other day, that um, when lockdown first happened, the grocers coped incredibly well, but early adopters had to then queue to get their slots. But the surprising story is that nobody's really fallen over and that everyone has coped, which I think is quite extraordinary. Well, yeah, when you say, when you talk about all the measures that you've had to put in place, Robin, you know, everyone's just had to adapt to what is the way you have to go kind of thing. I mean, it's very interesting, that, and I'm hoping, as I said the other, um, the other day, as Ian was referring to, that we can actually, all the other retailers who have kind of come back online, I mean, their stores are opening, are going to have the same capability to adapt. Mm. And uh, Robin, you have been a change agent in all the roles I've known you, and more things seem to have changed 
in the last eight weeks than even the most ambitious change agent could have hoped for, obviously under uh, adverse circumstances. But it really is quite an opportunity for people to totally retool their business without worrying about the business as usual, because nothing's usual. Have you found it's increased in some ways your flexibility to push forward with things, or has it uh, just been more of a distraction? Yeah, I think, as you're saying, what, what COVID has done is accelerate what was happening anyway. So what I expect to see coming out of this uh, in terms of our omnichannel competition is a uh, rationalisation of their stores. I don't expect them all to reopen, at least not all at once. Um, I think there'll be a rationalisation of what is possible to display in store in terms of people being able to get into the stores to browse. So I think all of our competitors will be looking to up their game in e-commerce. So I do expect that to become more uh, competitive. I think there'll be financial and property regearing in terms of what's affordable from a cost of doing business and um, mm-hmm. a sort of bank facility point of view. Uh, and I think some of those brands who still aren't very good online uh, or, or indeed not online will absolutely have to pull the lever and say, we're going to do it. Uh, so we've got a, a third arm, if you like, which is a B2B business where we offer a full end-to-end e-commerce service from website through to fulfillment. And that's the part that we're seeing uh, a lot of interest in right now from people who are looking for a turnkey solution that involves little investment. Right. Uh, but they know is scalable. And is this um, you becoming the Amazon of the wrist? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what is it that your service offers that, for example, they couldn't get by going to a standard uh, third-party pick-back dispatch business? So I think first and foremost on the retail side, what, what Watchshop is and what we've made it is a brand platform for brands to make sure that their product is displayed with all the right content, with all the right storytelling, uh, and that brand integrity is maintained in a way that I don't think it's possible to do on uh, a more commodity-based, much larger marketplace than the one that you described. I think that sort of marketplace serves a purpose in terms of the end of the product lifecycle, but not in building and establishing brands. So that's what we primarily provide for our brand partners. And what does that mean in practical terms? Because you could just say, well, that just means you put a banner on it and, you know, manage the uh, product listing page. How, how how do you, you know, sustain a brand presence experience? So as a gold partner, uh, we will build a bespoke product plan, starts from the product with you. Uh, a lot of that will be exclusive and special product you can't get anywhere else. We will then work with that brand to use all of their marketing product imagery, uh, all the videos they shoot, the celebrities that they work with, to build out a bespoke marketing plan for them. Uh, So we will co-invest with them alongside their own marketing capability. On our website, they have an enhanced presence, so they'll feature much more heavily in terms of being one of our top house of brands when you go to the, the, the homepage. But they also have their own bespoke brand room where we're using their assets to show their top products in the right way. So what's the um, what's the role of data, I guess, for these partners? You're now the only source or one of the only sources of data for them. I guess they're hungry for it. Uh, how's that going? Yeah, that's part of the package. So we'll share with them uh, a lot of customer stats. We're very conscious that one of our reasons to be is that we are a better retailer than the brands. And what makes us a better retailer is that we can be more efficient at finding the right customer for them. So we do quite a bit of work with them to, for them to understand what our customer profile is generally, but also where their customers sit within our database and how we can best engage with that customer. 
And do you think that's going to be, if you like, the an engine for growth going forward? For sure. Uh, and I think it's the difference between being a commodity mm. and being a brand. If you're trying to sell a brand a product, then all that storytelling, the careful curation of the product, all sits with being able to drive a higher margin than you otherwise would. If you put yourself on a commodity-based marketplace, you said goodbye to your margin, and I think you said goodbye to your brand. Yeah. So we offer a home for brands, and from a B2B perspective, that's also what we're able to do is to provide them with their own channel to market, albeit where they're effectively using all of our capability. It's interesting because one of the things that we are seeing, it's probably the last couple of years, is brands wanting to sell direct to consumers. But of course, they're set up for product development, R&D, wholesale, right. brand marketing. And that shift to the you know, step-by-step e-com and direct commerce is, is quite a jump. So in a way, I can see this being a, a very attractive um, approach. And just give us a, a thumbnail. How many brands do you sell within your store? So you've got the gold partners, that's the sort of top 20. But uh, you know, within the whole store, how many brand relationships do you have? Um, it, it'll vary a little bit depending on seasonality, but over, over 300 at any one time. Wow. What's the international outlook for you? I know I saw on your site that you ship pretty much everywhere, but what about establishing presence digital in those countries, or is it pretty much a UK focused, or how, how does it work? Um, so we uh, pay more attention to Europe now. Particularly good areas for us are uh, Poland, a great interest in Casio products in Poland, and, and Germany is not too dissimilar from that. In terms of seeing volumes growing out of lockdown, Germany's looking a lot healthier. Uh, France in particular is looking mm. really quite healthy. The smaller markets are the more of the Nordic countries. Um, Italy is, is still not coming out really in terms of volume growth so far. Wow. But, it's, but it's, it is increasingly, we think Europe is increasingly uh, worthy of investment, although obviously we need to see what happens as a result of, of Brexit sorting itself out <laughs> and in particular what the barriers to trade going forward. Yes. That's still to be that's still to be resolved, isn't it, after COVID? Well, we nearly made a whole podcast without uh, talking about Brexit. So you've got uh, you know, Brexit <laughs> and COVID uh, in one session. Hey, Robin, can I just ask you, I know this is a terrible thing to do to put you on the spot about previous employers, but we don't know many people who've got expertise, as I've said, in uh, uh, supermarkets and also in the health sector. So here goes. What are your thoughts about how well the supermarkets managed to respond to COVID? To the layperson, it seems to have gone very well. They seem to have responded. What was your thought about you know, their readiness and their response? I think generally they've done a good job. I think there was initial hiccups around panic buying and more could have been done to control that. And I think more responsibility should have been taken. And is that because you think they should have noticed there was panic buying or um, do you think they were just caught out because, you know, who panic buys toilet paper and flour? I think they were caught out, but also nobody went first. I think amongst the supermarkets, there's, a, there's an unwillingness to lead, and I think one of them should. But I think that's probably more a generalism about COVID. You don't see many industry people getting up to talk about the damage being done to the economy, and perhaps more people should. The supply chains have obviously been proved very resilient, and right now, obviously, the, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of good availability. I think what the online piece shows is that online grocery is incredibly hard to do, and it's incredibly hard to make money out of, and you can only really make it wash its face if you're operating more or less at full capacity all of the time. Mm-hmm. And any, any 
blips in demand that you haven't planned for that Christmas will break the system. Right. But I don't see how you can change that, particularly going forward, because to put in a lot of extra resilience requires a lot of extra cost. A quick example, when I was at Waitrose, we, we did two-hour delivery slots, and we wanted to compete with Ocado on doing one-hour delivery slots. But to do one-hour delivery slots would mean that each of our regions, little re- regions, would require four vans, not two vans. So you'd have to double your cost, and you, you certainly won't double in the sales or the profitability of that business. So it's, it's not a very scalable business. I think all, all of the um, supermarkets will add more online grocery capacity and they'll step change that because I think there's no doubt that structural demand going forward will be higher. I don't think they'll make much more money out of it because you'll still have those inherent inefficiencies of physical locations having to cater to both an online and an in-store customer. And it's impossible to maintain 100% availability all the time in those circumstances unless you've got an automated ordering system which talks to your uh, fulfillment systems as, as a cardo do. Does that, is there ever a case where they will fulfill orders online at the actual supermarkets themselves like they do in China? So it's a distributed system between dark stores and the stores. So each store will be allocated a regional area. And with Waitrose, they've just opened another dark store, haven't they? So And Tesco have got some. So uh, I'm sure you can, you can flex those geographical areas with demand. But essentially, it's mm. a fit, you need a physical point of presence to hit a region, whether that's a, a supermarket or, or a dark store. Because I noticed in China, they have oh. the Hanar, whatever it's called, the, the supermarket chain, that, you know, conveyor belts taking orders away, 30-minute delivery slots, as in from the time of order received, you know, they'll pick it from the floor in the supermarket and off they go. I don't see that, but then again, I don't go to supermarkets that often, so maybe I'm not a, a very good judge, but uh, it's an interesting model. Yeah. Okay, let's jump to Boots quickly, because um, Boots has that national treasure status. They did seem to be caught out a bit more before leaning into their role at the forefront of um, health advice and support for the country. Is that something that uh, you'd agree with or that surprised you? Uh, I would agree with that, and, and no, it didn't surprise me. Boots, as you say, occupies, I guess, a special place in, in UK retail. But perhaps over the years, the investments that has needed to be made to modernise it hasn't been there. And uh, the sense of command and control from the top in the UK has probably been diluted through the acquisition by Walgreens. Mm. I think organisationally, it's been eye-opening for me how much more efficient we've been with remote working than actually we were in the office. So I'm definitely going to keep some of the things that we are now doing. Um, So remote working will certainly be a part of most people's job descriptions unless we're in the warehouse. The Mm. focus in terms of doing daily and weekly stand-ups has really helped to to accelerate programmes in a way that has been, again, been quite eye-opening for me. Uh, so we'll be carrying on with with those things for sure. I think the other thing is how it's highlighted the, I wouldn't say hero, but the the importance of the warehouse staff to the rest of the organisation and how much the rest of the organisation has bought in mm. to having that dedicated warehouse staff. And I think they are much, much more appreciated than they were three months ago. It's the new front line. Thank you, Robin. And again, thank you, Gracia, for being such candid and insightful guests. 
As we release this episode, the industry is busy reopening stores and attempting to create an operating model that can sustain the steps back to a semblance of stability. There are many challenges ahead, and we wish you every success emerging from lockdown. I'm hoping that we'll be back in the studio soon, but in the meantime, we'll continue the socially distanced but mentally engaged conversations. Do let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast, or volunteer yourself. Drop me a note, ian at internetretailing.net. However, until the next episode, keep well and wash those hands. It has to go very, very, very wrong to be wrong. (laughs) Count on me to get to do that. (laughs) Anything that's not totally, totally, utterly wrong, it's right. (laughs) It's that's that's what's got us this far.